Hey guys, it's Stephanie with just a few notes before the episode starts. First of all, this episode is marked with an E for explicit. Second of all, this is our true crime episode. So we are going to be talking about a lot of dark and touchy subjects. Like yes, all the murdery things, but also we will be briefly talking about things concerning sexual assault and rape and death of a child and mass shootings so just be aware of that and take care of yourself and lastly a goof on my part i refer to the dirty john podcast as the dear john podcast multiple times in this episode so just wanted to say up top i do realize it is called dirty john and not dear john like the nicholas sparks novel or taylor swift song uh that is a goof on my part and i'm sorry so Anyway, here is our true crime episode. Enjoy. That's what we do, all of us. We make well-intentioned promises of protection we can't always keep. I'll look out for you. Michelle McNamara, I'll be gone in the dark. One woman's obsessive search for the Golden State Killer. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and keeping up with our nonfiction November theme, we are doing a topic that has been requested since we first started the podcast two years ago, true crime. And here to help me dive into the topic is my good friend in front of the show, Chelsea, from the Not Now I'm Reading podcast. I Hello, friends. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here today. I'm so excited to be on the true crime episode. As a Books in the Freezer listener, I have also been waiting <laughs> for the true crime episode. So then to get to like be on the episode just is, it feels very special. So I'm very delighted to be here. Well, as I was saying earlier, I am so glad to have you on this episode because true crime is something I feel like I lost touch with and is really having a moment right now. And I'm like, I need someone who is in this moment, like living it, like consuming it, you know, listening to the podcast, watching the shows. That is me. I am that I am that person. <laughs> awesome. So I'm very excited to dive into this. As I mentioned, we have you here to talk about true crime because you are a self-proclaimed true crime fan. Yes, I have been a true crime fan for a very long time. Like I come from a family of true crime fans. Okay. Um, when I was on your guys' episode talking about queer horror, I talked a little about how my mom has always been into horror as well, and this was part of it. We watched a lot of, like, like investigation discovery oh, yeah. or, like, investigation 48 hours and, like, some of, like, those kind of very cheesy early <laughs> true crime shows that were kind of pre this, like, newest wave of true crime stuff. But, yeah, I've always just been deeply fascinated by the people who perpetrate the kind of crimes we usually see featured in true crime documentaries. And then also the recent emphasis on victim narratives yeah. and giving justice to and the voice to victims of 
true crimes. And so I think that that's a really interesting thing that's coming out of this second wave and is really important and fascinating and like a different aspect to what we're now seeing is this huge like I feel like in the last two years it's like everywhere now like true crime is having a huge moment oh yeah definitely I remember I was really into investigation discovery in high school and I remember like my favorite show ever I would DVR this which lets you know what era this was I would DVR most evil that was my favorite show about the doctor who had the evil scale and he went, yep, he one. had the scale where he took in like motive and upbringing and how they did the crime and put them on this like scale of evil looking for the most evil. <laughs> I remember my parents coming home and thinking like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> well, it's a very like, it's a very weird way to kind of break yeah. down and like quantify or put like an equation to something like that but that's a a way of breaking down I think why people are so interested in true crime and in these stories of true criminals and actual murder and death and assault and all of these like horrible things were you a big America's Most Wanted watcher because my family was obsessed with America's Most Wanted uh we were not, but only because I think that was more of my dad. Like, I think by the time America's Most Wanted come on, my dad had come come home. And he was always a little bit, um, he didn't quite get it. I mean, it was fine. And it wasn't a big enough deal where he, like, shut it down. But I, I still don't think he quite understands <laughs> why my mom and I are, like, so into both horror and then, like, true crime. So his whole thing by that time was, like, he didn't need to be, you know bringing all of that into his dinner time, like, post-dinner relaxing stuff, which, like, I get, especially if that's not, like, your jam. I can understand why after a day at work you wouldn't necessarily want to be like, and here are super evil people that may or may not be right outside your house right now. Like, I mean, it's just, like, I can understand that. I remember having a hard time with that as a kid, and my parents would always say, like, oh, that's not going to happen here. Like, that wouldn't happen here. And the next segment gets introduced, and it's like, in a neighborhood where no one thought something like this could ever happen, <laughs> we bring you a grisly crime. And I'm like, great. <laughs> and of course, well, and that's what we always hear now, right? It's to look out for the quiet ones, and it's always the ones you least expect. And as an adult, it's easy to kind of navigate that. But as a kid, you're like, well, I don't expect anybody. <laughs> yeah. That means everybody could probably be a murderer. And it's just like, I mean, yes, but also that's a lot to wrestle with when you're, you know, below the age of 10 yeah. or whatever. It was a lot. I mean, I came out of it okay. I mean, you know, we're both here and we're fine. It's fine. I would say, like, there's certain, like, true crime stories that I'm like, I think if they hit too close to home, like, if it's, like, suburban mom was slaughtered, I'm like, oh. (laughs) Yeah. And I will say, like, it is one of those things where, as a true crime fan, even now it is interesting to me, like, because I'm also a mom and so, like, and I'm a mom whose partner, like, travels for work a lot, so... I will catch myself pretty much on the daily doing things or checking my surroundings or my behavior in a way that I know is because I have consumed so many stories that like of like hyper vigilance. It's like I may lock my screen door and leave my back door open on a nice spring day. And realistically, the odds of something happening. Meh, but like. Mm, mm. Also, I don't I will always be aware of the fact that like that's happening because in the back of my mind, I'm like, there have been at least like were different stories that you've heard about some very nice lady who just left her back door open on a spring day and then like was murdered and nobody ever figured it out and so it's just interesting to see 
both for the good and the bad, the ways that that kind of thing can like trickle over. And I was just always a very anxious kid. So me too. Yeah. And it's weird because like, and I'm still an anxious adult, but for whatever reason, these stories like don't trigger my anxiety a lot. They're helpful in ways like they, they function as almost kind of a low grade exposure therapy, Mm -hmm. right? Is like, I get to work through or hear these stories of people who've gone through these experiences that are kind of deeply terrifying, but also then kind of learn from that or have the opportunity to walk through what I would do in that kind of hypothetical to the extent that it's possible to do that. So I think it's, I know a lot of people who are anxious or who suffer with um, like mental health issues who do really enjoy true crime. And I've always thought that that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's some stories where I can see how it's, empowering especially if the victim survived like I remember at the end of Dear John I was like oh yeah like you get him girl (laughs) (laughs) especially since it was because of her consumption of horror (laughs) that she survived it's because she was watching The Walking Dead I'm like right on that's cool like that's fun that's interesting and fun to see Dear John was a trip oh yeah (laughs) most most like in true crime deep dive podcasts that function like Dear John did. I will be driving along just being like, oh my God, and I had no idea, and I didn't even know you could do that. I remember that was when I was doing a lot of yard work, and I was like, why are you doing this? This is a red flag. And I was just like yelling at my rake, like, ah, don't do that. Great. But yeah, I think that it's true crime, I think, is having a, a really interesting intersection of everything that's happening culturally in the moment. I feel like, like we mentioned earlier, there's this shift about the way we talk about and think about true crime, both that like legitimizes it. Like it takes it out of this realm of people just watching like snapped and America's most wanted and kind of puts it into this realm of like activism, like potential individual civic activism and also, like, giving credit and voice and weight to the victim side of the narratives. So it's interesting to see as somebody who's been reading true crime for so long have this kind of different viewpoint or different cultural significance placed on the genre. Yeah, and I was going to ask on your thoughts of, because I know when people start talking about true crime, they usually really get into the tricky ethics of it. Because it is tricky. And it's, I know a lot of people who very rightly have decided that like true crime is not for them because even in the most respectful and in-depth and victim-centered narratives, at the same time, like anytime we tell a story about Charles Manson, or we tell a story about, you know, XYZ famous killer, we're giving that person space, we're giving them time, we're shining a light on them. And even if we're not trying to heroize them, they become the name, like we remember the names of the people who murder probably 10 to one times more often than we remember the names of the people that they have murdered. And so there is especially if you get into like, more recent true crime with like, victims families who could still be living or who are still processing through the tragedy that is where I think it really gets um tricky and I prefer like my general true crime is I prefer like cases that have either already been solved and the person is alive or just or you know kind of quote justice has been found or where they take place enough time ago that 
any remaining like descendants of these victims' families or people involved have emotionally gotten the space and the distance to where it's not like directly affecting, you know, like Jack the Ripper's victims' descendants or Jack the Ripper's, you know, that's been enough time that it's not quite right there. And so, you know, I think like most things, there is true crime helps certain people process certain things about the world in a way that's helpful to them. And in a way that is not helpful to everybody. And so I think it's, you have to kind of make that call for yourself. But I'm glad to see that there is this discussion and this kind of other side discussion of why true crime maybe isn't the greatest. Or even just like what to be aware of or cognizant of if you're getting into true crime. And some of the ways that like our interest and involvement in it is goes beyond just like our interest and involvement in a different genre like horror as a whole or sci-fi or romance and that like these are real people on both the victim and victimizer side like these are real people who had real lives and who touched other real people's lives and the way that that can ripple out Mm -hmm. is complicated complicated (laughs) my husband's cousin was murdered by her boyfriend like he like locked her in the trunk of the car and pushed it into a lake and I'm yeah I'm Facebook friends with um his aunt so the girl's mom and like every year on the anniversary of her death she puts like the same senior picture and talks about it and then uh, my (laughs) sister-in-law texted us and said that she was watching like a true crime thing about like midwest murders and it was like featured there (laughs) I was like that's crazy Mm -hmm. and yeah and I imagine that you know for those members of your family like it's crazy on the one hand and also like may or may not be triggering or like Mm -hmm. re-emotional or re-traumatizing to them in certain ways you know it's like it may not be but it also may you know casually scrolling across the case of this person that you knew who was murdered Mm -hmm. in the midst of kind of all these other things it's you know I imagine it is like it would be for a lot of kind of reality tv things where it's like you know the actual true lived experience of the story and so seeing somebody else's recounting of the events or the details even if they're like factually accurate could feel or seem or come across as very different and very kind of like hard to reconcile with that and I've you know I listen to my favorite murder a lot and they've talked about they've had you know the family members or relatives of former cases that they've talked about who have said that you know it is really hard and it is a very it's a difficult thing to wrestle with like this is already a tragedy that's happened and now to have your tragedy be turned into like a conversation or a story or a podcast or television episode that then people are kind of talking about almost as if it didn't happen or they're using the same language to speak about it although it's a story like a made up story, not like a true story that impacted you directly. And so I have a lot of sympathy for and a lot of empathy for how difficult and how kind of upsetting that might be, especially because I feel like as the trend is continuing, people are kind of digging deeper and into more and more of the small town stuff because we've heard so many of the big stories and the big names of that true crime world. And so people are always looking for that weird small town, like you said, like, in a small town where nothing yeah. ever happens and nobody thinks anything could happen, something happened. And, like, that story is becoming more and more popular or prevalent, I feel like. Oh, definitely, as people keep looking for content <laughs> to make. Yeah. I did want to ask why you think we as women seem to be the biggest consumers of it. 
I think that's interesting. And I think that, you know, I want to hear what you had to say, too, because I think that we have we have you and I share kind of horror overlap as like a genre. But I also operate a lot in like romance circles. And I feel like both of those genres are genres that are super popular and super foundationally kind of created by women. And I feel like part of that is both romance and true crime show us different sides of what we can expect or what is okay to expect from people. And whereas romance puts all of those things like on the positive, I feel like for me, I will speak for me as a cis female, I feel like true crime can serve as a very like anti-gaslight, can serve as a kind of source of material that says like, that voice inside your gut, like it can be true. Like if you like listening to that little voice is a good thing or like, you know, you know, when somebody smiles at you on the street and it's kind of a friendly smile, but also like it's not a friendly smile. And so I feel like we hear a lot of stories about, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt. Women especially are super conditioned to be polite and to be kind and to be soft-spoken and to be accommodating and true crime kind of reinstills or reinforces that like you don't always have to be that way or that voice that's in your head that's telling you right now that you don't have to be polite or that you're in danger or that something is off is a voice to be listened to and and what can happen when you do or don't listen to that voice in a way that escapes victim blaming right because I rarely hear a story where it's like oh and then she didn't listen to that voice in her in her you know gut and that's why xyz happened but it is very much so like if you don't validate that instinctual reaction that as women we a lot of times are societally told to oppress because our reactions might be rude or unaccommodating like things can go wrong. And so it's an empowering way of like choosing to listen to that voice and what can happen when you do or don't. And I'm wondering as like a horror reader, if you think that it's just in true crime that that can happen, or if you think it's more of like the horror genre as a whole can do, like can serve kind of a similar purpose. I think the horror genre as a whole, I was actually just going to say another podcast that I love and listen to is the faculty of horror. And they have a lot of conversations about this, about how we as women are conditioned to make people comfortable. And sometimes to the extent where we value making the situation comfortable for other people over our safety. And I remember one episode they talked about this in is when they did the old Stepford Wives movie. Mm -hmm. And the main character, I forget her name, but she agrees to talk to one of the main guys and record her voice saying all of these different sounds and letters that's you know we know later going to be used against her but she thinks this is her bargaining chip this civility there is a little bit too in the knowledge is power and listening to something and thinking like okay that is a red flag like I'm right about that whenever I see that happening Mm -hmm. I have a right to feel scared and to listen to those alarm bells going off yeah and I think that it serves to kind of um categorize or taxonomize some of the things that the people perpetrating these crimes can do like I'm looking at our list of classics in the genre and it's I'm looking at The Stranger Beside Me by Anne mm-hmm. Rule which is a book about her her experience with Ted Bundy and part of that is 
you know, she knew Ted Bundy, like, socially. She volunteered with him. She knew him as a person. And part of what took her such a long time to come around to the belief and understanding that Ted Bundy was who the crime sheet says he was and not this person that she – and this, like, she breaks down the fact that he's clean cut. He's socially not super awkward. He knows how to operate. He knows how to manipulate women. And so we're able to see kind of – from that perspective, in a lot of these ways, the things that these largely men, let's be honest, will do to largely women or femme identifying people. And we're able to see from an outside perspective the manipulations they use or the the social cues that they can kind of manipulate. And like you said, it, it is a reinforcing then to the reader of like, if I see somebody doing that, maybe this will then kind of ping for me in my brain of like, that's a manipulation or like, that's not a truth or that's something that is making me feel unsafe and there might be more to that than just like me being quote silly or you know not reading the situation yeah. correctly yeah exactly that's a good way to put it being over dramatic or flighty or all of those messages that we're taught to think our feelings actually are instead of what they really are so I think that's why it's probably so popular with women makes sense I mean, another subculture that lives in true crime is the amateur sleuth culture on Reddit for like big mm-hmm. unsolved cases. And I will say this is a part of true crime that like I'm not in, but I think is like super fascinating, mm-hmm. which is like the people who hear about these crimes and then choose to um, proactively go and using the crowdsourced intelligence of the Internet see what they can solve and like there are cases that have been solved because like reddit folks and other amateur like online message board kind of sleuths have pooled resources and knowledge together to create enough of this database or even like you know it's not quite the same thing but you know when they caught the golden state killer they caught that based off of a familial relation from like a match dot car from like a 23andme like genetic screening and so like there is this interesting almost kind of like crowdsourced crime fighting, crime solving almost industry mm-hmm. or community that's really sprung up around this that I feel like is I want to say it's good. Like I don't want to per- like give a value judgment because I'm not in it, but like I think it is for the better that people are taking proactive steps because so many times we hear about, you know, police workload, police, you know, resources being spread thin and like you know that the actual institutions maybe can't and I understand that there are also ethical stuff and like you know legal stuff and all of that that you get into when it comes to like amateur crime solving but on the whole I think that it's really great that one of the things that's come out of the second wave of true crime has been this really like proactive and involved online community yeah I agree I was definitely thinking of uh the book I'm talking about later about the Golden State Killer and the community that came around there and the late author Michelle McNamara talked about people constantly sending her messages and theories that they had and all kinds of stuff which that has been which we'll talk about it later when we talk about your book but that whole thing has been such a fascinating because like it was such a big case for so long that got solved in the midst of this like huge rise of this second wave of true crime so then like you had podcasts who had already talked about it as like this kind of unsolved case, but now it was a solved case, 
mostly allegedly quote unquote like you know but like so it's been really fascinating to watch like the evolutionary kind of process in real time of going from like a legendary unsolved case to now like a solved case and being able to go back and listen to like theories people had and pinpoint this was right this was right this was wrong this was right these things were right like as it's currently coming up and so god bless michelle mcnamara may she rest in peace and i will just forever be sad that she did not get to uh, see everything come to fruition the way that she probably really deserved to see so that's a bummer bummer well as we get to it i think that book is definitely going to become a classic of the genre (laughs) as you mentioned we do have a few other books that we would consider classics in the true crime genre and I've read a few of them and of course Chelsea has read all of them so (laughs) she'll be able to chime in with some more expertise true guilty (laughs) so the first one I wanted to talk about was In Cold Blood by Truman Capote I read this in high school and I remember that the big part of the book was Truman Capote really getting chummy with the murderers. But I remember the part that will always haunt me forever and that I literally lost sleep over was the beginning where the friend is walking into the house and is waiting to get taken to school and just walks into this crime scene. Just that opening scene forever just scarred me as a high schooler. I get shivers yeah. just like hearing you talk about it because I can picture it and I haven't read that book in probably a decade and can still picture that first scene my favorite part of that book is that maybe Harper Lee actually wrote it spoiler alert don't tell anybody that's that's one of my favorite uh this theory like conspiracy literary conspiracy (laughs) theories Truman Capote and Harper Lee were super great friends so there's a theory that Harper Lee actually wrote in cold blood so I don't think it's actually true but you know it's a fun theory we'll throw it out there (laughs) A few years ago, I also read Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, which I haven't seen the movie, but it did make me want to visit Georgia. I think it's Savannah. That's where it takes place, right? That's where the Garden of Good Mm -hmm. and Evil is. It is. And I remember that there was the murder case, but what I found more interesting was all of the side characters and all of the other just interesting people that live in this town and the culture of Savannah and just Savannah as a location. That I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. I know there's like a murder and stuff, but like these people are really interesting. Well, I think it's really interesting because what the midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil has to do with the devil in the white city, which is the next kind of classic that we'll talk about is they both feature the city in which they take place as like a really kind of fundamental character almost or like the setting function is like really vital. Like it would be hard to have the midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil that takes place in like Wisconsin like it just wouldn't be the same book and the devil in the white city which is by Eric Larson takes place in Chicago it's about murder house uh if you've never heard it's about the H.H. Holmes Mm -hmm. murder house that he built at the same time that the world's fair was happening so it is both the book is this very interesting dual narrative of like setting up Chicago for the world's fair and all of the stuff going on with that and why the increase like foot traffic and the just busyness of the city allowed H.H. Holmes to build his super complicated um, murder house that was full of like secret passages and trap doors and torture rooms and all this really interesting stuff. And of course, H.H. Holmes is one of the first kind of um, quote modern American serial killers. Um, Stephanie wrote in our notes that it's being made into a Scorsese movie, which I didn't know. So that's actually super awesome because I don't think I knew that. Starring good old Leo. (laughs) 
I think he's going to be H.H. Holmes. (sighs) They're buds. Like, I mean, I think it was a given. (laughs) It's fine. Yeah, it's fine. I don't. I don't hate Leonardo DiCaprio as H.H. H. Holmes, but I feel like we're getting a little too, like, casting Zac Efron as, um, oh, shit, who was it? Was it? Ted Bundy. Ted yeah. Bundy? Yeah, it was Ted Bundy. Like, I just, like, I don't know how I feel about casting hot people as serial killers. I just don't know if I can, like, hop fully on board that trend. But I guess it just depends on... I mean, I could see him taking it seriously. I think they're hot. Oh, for sure. And I think that, like, I just want to see Scorsese do murder house like I think as a film it will be super interesting to see how that happens yeah uh, Helter Skelter which is our next one this is a book by Vincent Berbiglia this is his um kind of full length expose true crime book about the Manson family murders and it covers from a couple of weeks before the murders take place on the Manson family compound all the way up to the murder of Sharon Tate, uh, Roman Polanski's girlfriend who was pregnant at the time. And of course, um, Squeaky Fromm and the capturing of the Manson girls who did the murder. And, uh, you know, I feel like I'm because these are classics and it's Charles Manson. I feel like I'm kind of like just doing the Wikipedia entry. But like you probably are vaguely aware of Charles Manson. Helter Skelter is the book that really laid everything out and Vincent Berbiglia did a really like huge deep dive of talking to neighbors looking at crime reports looking at police reports putting together this like it's like a 400 page book it is not a small book that is all about I'd only seen like beat up like yeah, mass it's a market big copies and I'd never really thought about how long it was <laughs> yeah it's a bit I listened to it on audio like it's a big like chunker of a book but it is super fascinating if you are into like the cult side aspect of like true crime and kind of that aspect specifically of the Manson family because he spends a lot of time talking about like the biography of Charles Manson Charles Manson as like a personality and like a figurehead to this movement and then also like how all of that impacted the crime and the capture and the defense Charles Manson had because Charles Manson's whole kind of defense was that he didn't kill anybody right like he didn't pull any triggers or hold any knives but also like he very much so did yeah. inspire and kind of uh, mentally force these people to do what they did. So it's just that very kind of interesting breakdown of how we assign guilt and blame. And also, like, Charles Manson is just fucking... Uh, yeah. Like, I hate to use the word fascinating because it implies almost like a positivity. But there's just something about the brains of people who are sociopathic and become, like, cult leaders that is unlike the way a, quote, normal person's brain functions that I just can't help but want to, like, learn more about oh yeah i loved the you must remember this series that she did on the manson family well her podcast is great and it's just always like so well researched but that was fascinating i love that podcast they're doing one right now on the song of the Mm -hmm. south which is my husband's favorite awful disney movie Um, (laughs) yeah that's a really great (laughs) we don't we don't we've never been able to find a copy he's looking he's always looked because he it's this weird like you know like kind of the one piece of disney culture that disney is like does not talk Mm -hmm. about does not want to talk about there are not copies you cannot find it anywhere and like the reasons why it was made to begin with and then like its legacy is super so we are listening Mm -hmm. to that on you must remember this but yeah last podcast on the left did like a five piece charles manson series the um not my favorite murder girls have done a couple you know have done an episode on charles like i feel like it's one of those things where Every true crime podcast, when they're kind of first putting on their big, like, deep dive, you know, investigatory shit, like, they do 
Charles Manson, which I think is worthy because there's a lot about like 60s counterculture and the environment in San Francisco and kind of all of the societal things that play into the way Charles Manson was able to do what he did and why he did what he did. So I just, it's really interesting. And then the last one, we've kind of already talked about a little bit. It's The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. Anne Rule is an investigatory journalist and also a police officer who (laughs) has written, yeah, who has written several true crime books, one of which I'll talk about again later. But The Stranger Beside Me is kind of the one that I think has gotten her the most attention recently, or at least has become the most identified book with her recently. And this is her story of, like I said, volunteering at a suicide hotline with and becoming friends with Ted Bundy. And then her being like a detective in training on the Ted Bundy case as she is befriending and getting to know Ted Bundy socially and like the slow overlap of those two worlds as she comes to realize that like her friend Ted has done these super disturbing and awful and terrible things. And so it's I love it because I think it's an example of like how and why people can never know. You know, I think there can be a lot of guilt for a person who is associated with a serial killer or somebody who does true crime and kind of this like, if somebody's that awful, how do you not know? Like, doesn't it just like radiate off of them? And here's a book from somebody who's a journalist and a police detective in training who's sat right next to, you know, one of the century's most infamous serial killers and didn't know at first. And so there's something I think kind of like comforting in that idea to me, like, I know some people find it really frightening that like, you know, the devil exists right beside you next door. But like, I think that there, it can be kind of reassuring to go like, you won't always know, or like, it's not something in you as a person, if you are not receptive immediately to like, whether or not somebody else can do that. So that's our last little classic of the genres, The Stranger Beside Me by Anne Rule. And we talked about there being just so much true crime media. So I just did want to take a minute to talk about some good old documentaries one that I really liked and I know it was a chilling obsession when it came out was on HBO but Mommy Dead and Dearest that was over the Dee Dee Blanchard and Gypsy Rose case which I found absolutely fascinating and a lot of people did because they made it into the act on Hulu which was I was gonna say I have not I didn't realize this exists I'm gonna have to go watch this I'm like on HBO I'm gonna have to find it because we my husband and I watched the Hulu Mm -hmm version of this story and uh, that's what I was going to talk about the Hulu version in this little section because we started watching it and it was one thing and then it goes to a place and it's like a different thing and I spent the whole show just being like oh my god what is happening oh my gosh I remember watching it and being as tense as if I was watching a horror movie (laughs) just certain scenes and the way it was directed I'm like no no wait don't wake up ah don't go in there well and it just is this weird emotional journey of like being very like yeah gypsy like make your own life do your own and then like but you're like oh but not like that not Uh if you have to do it in that way and do that like don't do that and so all of a sudden you like very quickly go from like cheering her on to being like i don't know about this anymore (laughs) and it's a very um yeah i really enjoyed it i'm gonna have to go Mm -hmm. watch mommy dead and dearest now to get the like actual like IRL true crime Mm -hmm. documentary of the story they interviewed Gypsy and they interviewed like her biological father and just yeah all of the layers to that story and just the kind of person that Dee Dee was is just fascinating deeply fascinating and a very yeah man 
I love that case. I don't want it. It's <laughs> super fascinating. Lots of twists and turns. It's like one of those things where it's like complicated because the victim was a person that was abusing another person and it's the abuse victim fighting back. And it's just so complicated. It's so complicated. And it like the whole idea of Munchausen mm-hmm. syndrome, just like in general is one thing. But then like to add to that, like the abuse and the fighting back and the it's just yeah, lots of moving pieces, and so it's super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, my one that I want to talk about, this is probably, this was a Netflix one that I'm sure, I mean, I know you guys talked about a little bit, and I'm sure our, your listeners have mostly watched it, but it's um, Abducted in Plain Sight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a while. This is, this is a story about a little girl who gets abducted twice, twice by the same people who happen to live next door to her parents, and it's the story of how this family is able to kidnap the same girl twice and how this family is able to so clearly miss the signals and like a lot of these stories it gets into like religion and religious systems and a community of people who belong to the same religion and how that builds a certain amount of trust and then how that trust is betrayed or violated and it's just like like you hear one story about a little girl who is abducted by her next door neighbors and it happens once and you're like, oh, my God. And then you hear that it happened again to this same girl by these same people. And it is just mind blowing the way that the story is told. I watched bits and pieces of this, but this was one that my husband the next morning was like, sit down. Let me tell you the story about this like crazy thing. And then he's like, no, it's not, that's not even the end of it. And then add on top of like he was so excited to tell me and I was sitting there like this cannot possibly be true see your husband does too I do to my husband which is probably three to four times a week be like oh my god guess what guess what I just learned guess about this crazy true thing that I just heard about and he's uh he very politely puts up with my murder stories I think with my husband it's like he likes uh, some true crime it's like when I start getting into horror, I'm like, and then the person got decapitated by it and he's like, please stop. I can't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Usually my husband's end up with like, and then, you know, the thing happened. He's like, oh, and then somebody was murdered and somebody else either did or didn't get caught. And I'm like, shut up. You don't, you don't know me. Shut up. Um, and then, of course, there's Making a Murderer. Mm-hmm. Uh, switching back to the, the big documentaries. I feel like that's a pretty... Um, like key foundational one in terms of this like second wave of visual documentaries or like TV or film based like true crime kind of things. The Stephen Avery case and everything that happened with that. I think I didn't, was it, I know it was two. There may have even been a third season about making a murderer. I know for a fact there are two. I think there's just two. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I know that's another um, super popular one, especially with the, um, like you were saying, the kind of Reddit homegrown sleuth community ones because so many pieces of that case don't necessarily add up so I know that that's a really fun one for kind of amateur crime solvers to try and pick apart and come up with like theories and stuff on that's what I think I only watched a few episodes on and I'm like this is too much I'm getting too frustrated it's a lot and of course that was one that came out right around the same time as like um s-town and some of the later seasons of serial which got into kind of some of the um ethics of true crime journalism and how you report on the true crime aspects of something that's still going on and 
where it's okay to kind of speak and suppose and where it's less okay. And so there's just there's a lot of ethical stuff around true crime yeah. guys, <laughs> from all the different aspects. <laughs> and speaking of S-Town, do you have any other good podcast recommendations for people to get into true crime you're like yes I do just oh, wait goodness. <laughs> as I like as I like grab my phone I'm like well since we've asked no I'm just kidding um I do obviously I feel like recommending my favorite murder is kind of um old hat at this point if you are a true crime fan specifically like a uh serial killer or murder based true crime fan and you're not listening to my favorite murder please go start <laughs> Georgia Hardstark and Karen Kilgareth both alternate off and on telling uh, researched stories of different serial killer. And it's not always serial killers. Sometimes it's one-off murders. A lot of times they'll pull from shows like I Survived or um, BuzzFeed Unsolved or just like different crime kind of outlets from around and then do deep dive stories. But I also really like, and this is why we drink. And this is why we drink is a really great podcast because they actually do two things. They have one in every episode. They do one kind of true crime story. And then they also do one kind of um, like ghost story or supernatural or kind of like unexplained mystery story. Um, The title and the idea being that both like the known and the unknown uh, kind of insanity of the world is why we drink. (laughs) (laughs) Hence the show title. Um, And then the last one that I think. I would recommend when it comes to at least like true crime. There are a couple. There's Uncover, which very much so kind of like serial does various um, seasons and every season tells a different story. This is the podcast that their very first season was on the company Nexium and the like weird multi-level marketing slash sex cult that Nexium was. (laughs) But they've also done stories on like disappearing and murdered queer men in Toronto's uh, East Village. This most next one that they're getting ready to do has to do with like um, old like cold cases and the ethics around bringing up cold cases and prioritizing which like cold cases you'll dedicate resources to. So I really like that one in terms of like if you're looking for something that's a bit more contained and less kind of chatty or personable and is much more just like a story of a true crime then I think uncover is a really good one and I have others but I think that's probably good or this section is going to be super long for you to have to edit <laughs> it'll be like one hour of just podcast listening it literally could be I'm like not just because I love them but also because like true crime has like as much as podcasts have become like a huge thing in the last probably two or three years true crime podcasts have gone like right along with that wave in terms of like being super popular and there's kind of a flavor for everybody when it comes to what you like your true crime to be I know my sister really likes small town murder see that is one that like like we were saying earlier I don't listen to as much because like I'm kind of from a small town and like it's very suburban and normal but also like that's what makes it kind of scary and so like as much like that is one like Sometimes I have to have my husband or my friends remind me for my own good of like, I think I'm fine. And like, I'm just, you know, listening and cleaning and going along. And then it's like three in the morning and I wake up and I'm like having a panic attack. And I'm like, what's what's going on here? And my husband has to be like, maybe you should not for a couple of days. And I have to be like, yeah, that's a good point. That's fair. Uh, very relatable. Like she was telling me about it and I'm like, I don't know if I can handle that right now where I am in life. Yeah, it's a hard one. Anyway, let's get to the meat of this podcast, which is, of course, book recommendations. This episode is brought to you by The Tear Collector by Sean Burgess. 
After a young girl with autism goes missing in the small Appalachian town of Harper Pass, Brooks Raker and his friends are inadvertently drawn into the police investigation. As the town suffers a mysterious death, more kids disappear, and the boys experience a series of unsettling phenomena. It becomes clear that the fate of their missing classmate, Margot Combs, pales in comparison to what lies in wait in the margins of the town. Between avoiding the bullies who are stalking them and running from the encroaching lethal darkness, the walls are closing in around Brooks and his friends. They soon realize their fates are inextricably bound, and if they have any hope of surviving, they must unravel the dark secrets of Harper Pass before those secrets can devour them. The Tear Collector is a fast-paced paranormal thriller that advanced readers have described as riveting, horrifically chilling, spine-tingling fun, and hard to put down. The Tear Collector comes out December 2nd. I will have pre-order links in the show notes as well as the description box for this episode. And thank you again for supporting the show. So I wanted to talk about a book called Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History by Tori Telfer. And this was based on the quote that in 1998, FBI profiler John Hazelwood declared that there were no female serial killers. This whole book is basically a dispute to that claim and offers stories of 14 women who, you know, looking at the evidence, could be classified as serial killers. So Tori Telfer, the author of the story, had a column in Jezebel by this name, and this is kind of a compilation of that. So she gets into different ways women who kill are portrayed or perceived by society or portrayed in the media. So oftentimes, like if they're an older woman, like there was a older woman who serially poisoned her husband and they nicknamed her like the poisoning granny, (laughs) like uh, in a way that even when women are doing these things and committing murder, they are still not being taken seriously. (laughs) And uh, she talked about the murders that inspired the musical, well, the book and the musical Chicago, the Mary Murderesses in Cook County, which were Belva Gardner and Beulah Annan. And even then it was, they were played up for their sexuality. So it's like, either way, you can't win. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> either you're like this sexy, like a killer and isn't that kind of cool? Or you're like, look at this granny poisoning and offing men. <laughs> and like what's weird about that thesis to me is like you hear something like well no women could ever be and my immediate reaction is like yes we can (laughs) women can be whatever we want we can be serial murderers too and then you're like oh but (laughs) i tell people i'm like it's kind of feminist but in kind of like hey we can be killers too guys (laughs) (laughs) which like yes yes women can also be homicidal maniacs but like Maybe that's not the front on which we'll fight the next war of feminism. (laughs) And I think one of the older cases that she starts out with is um, Countess Elizabeth Bathory, which, you know, lives on in lore as the evil countess who tortured peasants from nearby villages and legend has it like bathed in the blood of virgins to like keep herself young. Um, So she talks about that. But in reading reviews about this, there were so many people that talked about how she actually had it wrong. And Elizabeth Bathory was actually like a victim of all these people trying to like control her wealth. So I read it and now I'm like, I don't know what to believe. What is truth? (laughs) What is truth? What a 2019 (laughs) booze, Stephanie. So despite all of the murders that are described here, I would say this is mostly room temperature. She doesn't spend a lot of time talking about how these murders took place. It's more... Like a thesis, like, yes, we can be serial killers, too. And here's why. (laughs) You're fine. (laughs) Which, 
I will appreciate. You know what? If nothing else, I will appreciate a um, yes, we can feminist thesis, even if it's also yeah, Rosie murder. the Riveter for serial killers. For oh my god, it's like Rosie the Riveter, but she's holding like a severed arm <laughs> or like a machete, and just oh, guys. So that was Lady Killers, Deadly Women Throughout History by Tori Telfer. I will go ahead and give my suggestions in order of like publication recentness starting with the oldest this is green river running red the real story of the green river killer america's deadliest serial murderer this is the other Anne rule that i was talking about earlier the other Anne rule book um the green river killer is one of the most prolific serial killers in american history um gary ridgeway over the course of his kind of murdering career uh killed more than 49 women most of them sex workers and so what i love about this book or really appreciate about this book is that Anne rule gives time dedicated to each one of the 49 women some women are given more time on the page than others because it really comes down to kind of what Anne rule was able to find when she interviewed Um, family members or community members or dug through police reports so not as much was known about every victim but every victim as much as possible is given room on the page to be described and given narrative weight to in a way that doesn't usually happen in a lot of true crime books where especially for somebody whose kind of victim list is so large um, the tendency might be to kind of lump them together or move past them really quickly to focus more intently on what Gary Ridgway actually did. And so, like, I really appreciate that, that a good chunk of this book is dedicated to naming and giving light and room to the victims of Gary Ridgway. On top of that, it's a super interesting deep dive because Gary Ridgway lived not too far from Anne Rule. Anne Rule learned throughout the course of publishing this book that Gary Ridgway would come to book events and like book release events for the stranger beside me um and would be there in the room while Anne was talking and so like for whatever reason of fate Anne Rule has had these um interpersonal interactions and ties with so many of kind of the big names in the history of American serial killers um so I do want to say like Anne Rule's writing style I think can read a little bit colder than we might be used to in this like kind of second wave where there's a much more like kind of personable or storytelling style this book reads much more as like a reporting um it can be much more factual it's much more kind of names and dates and there are details provided about the investigatory team and stuff and so it's not that it's uninteresting but it is it reads like a reporting of these events as opposed to like and rule your friend and buddy is going to like sit you down and tell you the story of Gary Ridgway. So for some people, that is a point of friction. For some people, it's not. But just know that going in. But yeah, that's Green River Running Red, The Real Story of the Green River Killer, America's Deadliest Serial Murderer by Ann Rule. Oh, that is crazy how much interaction, <laughs> whether she knew it or not, Ann Rule had with prolific serial killers. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. Oh, man. I love it. So the next book I'm talking about, I feel like I've mentioned before, at least in passing on the podcast that I mentioned at the top of the episode, but it is I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer by Michelle McNamara. As we mentioned, um, this book was published posthumously um, as Michelle McNamara unfortunately died before she got to see all of her research and everything come to fruition. 
Um, but this was about her obsession with the killer known originally as the Night Stalker and then as the Golden State Killer, who, as we mentioned, was caught after her death. I've mentioned this when I mentioned it on a previous episode, but this is one of the most freezer-worthy books I have ever read. I literally lost so much sleep after I read this. I had to go and make sure everything in my house was locked. I double-checked every window. Like, this was something that really just crept into my everyday life, and, like, (laughs) I just could not stop thinking about this book. Um, And just, the Golden State Killer was so despicable, and how he perpetrated these crimes that there is so much joy when you get to the end of the book and he is finally brought to justice and well in real time seeing that the the killer was caught like you said with dna from like a 23 and me from it was like a relative it wasn't even him it was like a, mm-hmm. it's like his a cousin or like a second yeah. cousin like somebody who didn't even would not have known like that this was a person that they were related to who was doing these things which like don't give your DNA to companies, guys. That's a different conversation for a different time. And like, yes, it solved a crime, but like, don't give companies your genetic material. Uh, and this one was hard because a lot of the situations, it's like there was nothing I feel like the victims could have done. He was just so meticulous in the way he would go into a house and just really make sure there was no way out and that they had no options but to comply and the lengths that he went to and when his crime started escalating when he started targeting couples together like even that little bit of protection that you feel when you have your partner at home I feel like was stripped away like reading that book was like oh no not even this can save me well and that's gets at that very scary thing of what happens when like um somebody who knows what they're doing starts to perpetrate like like the man who is the Golden State Killer mm-hmm. is a cop, and that's how he's so good at being so meticulous and knowing exactly how to enter and leave without leaving any, like, evidence behind. But that idea of, like, this person who is supposed to be on the side of good then, like, using those skills to perpetrate, like, some of the most heinous crimes is, like, deeply oh terrifying. <laughs> like, deeply terrifying. Some of the I remember were heartbreaking the one I remember the most was this like mother and daughter who were on the outs and the daughter like ran away like she would run away a lot but she like ran away for like the night or the weekend and while she was gone is when the mother was attacked and killed and so the daughter who was interviewed has like survivor's guilt about that and I'm like I just can't imagine living with that that's awful so horrible the one the one I always remember is the one of it's a mother and daughter but they're both um abducted or they're both taken together and um he just leaves them on the bed in the dark for a long enough time that the mother tries to talk and tries to kind of start to leave the situation and the daughter shushes her and the net like 20 seconds later he's there and he's like shaking the bed that they're on so he's like intentionally leaving them in silence thinking that they're safe just to then remind them that he's still there like it's just it's the psychological torture and the terrifying like psychological aspect on top of like having somebody break into your house and like all of the especially for being unsolved for so long and living in this community and knowing that somebody is out there doing this and nobody can stop him nobody can figure it out the police have nothing and it's just 
It's so good, like you said, when you get to the end and he actually gets caught. <laughs> but, oh my gosh, so frustrating up until then. And you're like, no. So, yes, this one goes straight into the freezer. This one really, I don't want to say ruined my life. It definitely ruined my sleep cycle for a bit. And any, like, little thing I heard, I'm, like, bolting upright in bed. Like, what is happening? What is going on? So, not for the faint-hearted, I will say. This is a Fraser book, if there ever was one, and that is I'll Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Obsessive Search for the Golden State Killer by Michelle McNamara. Um, All right. My next one is Beyond Belief, My Secret Life Inside Scientology and My Harrowing Escape by Jenna Miscavige-Hill with help from Lisa Pulitzer. So a lot of what we've been talking about so far is true crime as it relates to like murder, but there's also this really fascinating, I think, true crime angle or kind of subgenre that looks at like um, cults or super problematic religious institutions and the type of crimes that can be perpetrated within them. Um, this is not like I have feelings and have done a lot of research on Scientology. And if as a separate issue you would like to come DM me to talk about it, like that's cool. But this is not really so much like a thing about Scientology or like religious institutions as philosophical places, but as um, institutions that usually rely on hierarchy and secrecy to accomplish their goals and as such create scenarios and environments in which predators can thrive. All of which is to say this is the book of the niece of David Miscavige. If you are not into like Scientology, if you haven't read Going Clear 8,000 times like I have, David Miscavige is essentially the current kind of face of and leader of Scientology after the founder L. Ron Hubbard passed away. Um, he's a super bad dude. His wife has been like disappeared and nobody's heard what? from her in like seven years. Yeah, she's yeah, Shelly Miscavige. She's just gone. Nobody really knows where she is. Um, And as the head of the church, he oversees an institution that we now know as a society is full of um, sexual abuse, physical abuse, child abuse, um, physical and emotional. Like, it's just Scientology is a bad place, y'all. So Beyond Belief is the um, next to or closest to investigatory look at David Miscavige as the leader of Scientology, as well as what it's like for a person within the structure of the church to go through and get out of these abuses. I know that there are a lot of people who think that these kind of books can be almost like exploitative, but I think that it's really necessary and interesting for the survivors of these kinds of institutions to have the chance to tell their story. Um, Whether you want to consume it or not is obviously your choice. This to me is, I think, like a fridge book because essentially what it does is it asks you to look at how the institutions and environments surrounding a person can warp and change things that already exist inside them to the worse. Um, You know, I don't, I personally believe that like no person is necessarily born evil, but through a combination of context and environmental factors, um, you know, that's how life happens. And so this is very much so a look at how the kind of institution that Scientology is changes David Miscavige or inspires him or gives him the space and permission to do these things to a member of his own family. Jenna is his niece. And so it's um, really disturbing if you start to think about it in terms of like a human beings doing things to other human beings kind of level, as well as if you look at it from like a how your everyday average person can then be kind of brought into 
an institution like Scientology to a point where they are suddenly doing things that they never thought that they would do or living lives and making choices that they never thought that they would make. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Cult conditioning is insane. (laughs) It's so insane. And, you know, Scientology has it down to almost a, a science at this point in terms of the way that their indoctrination process works and functions and like several like ex cult um, psychologists have gone through like Scientology's basic functional like structuring and principles and pointed out all the ways that it is a cult so like like I said if you want to come talk to me about Scientology as like a general concept please feel free I find it disturbingly fascinating but uh beyond belief my secret life inside Scientology and my harrowing escape by Jenna Miscavige Hill with help from Lisa Pulitzer is my wreck that sounds fascinating (laughs) and also just so disturbing just cults and just all the brainwashing and like you said especially from a institution like Scientology that has it completely down pat like they know what to say to you and I know a lot of the podcasts I listen to are people that like live and work in Hollywood and they have a lot of jokes about like I went to a museum one day and then like at the end of it people were handing me brochures and I was like oh no this is Scientology (laughs) so it's just (laughs) crazy that it's it's everywhere and such a big part of like Hollywood and that's yeah that's what's deeply fat like as a fellow sci-fi reader like the fact that L. Ron Hubbard got his start writing for like the same magazines that like Ray Bradbury and Piers Alex like all John Joseph Adams like they all came up at the same time but to know that whereas like some of those legacies are like the Hugo Awards or like legendary children's books that we read his legacy is the entire Church of Scientology and it's just like it's kind of a trip to think about I know they go more into the like Hollywood side of things and like going clear but it's like crazy it's I mean and it's one of those things where people like everybody knows obviously like John Travolta and Tom Cruise but it's one of those things where it's like like you were saying a lot of those podcasts mention like everyday actors that you wouldn't even think have taken like even just the basic like Scientology class right or took even like the walked off the street and took like the intro level Scientology classes because it's such a big Mm -hmm. thing in Hollywood and it's such like a cultural kind of institution in Hollywood that yeah it's like Super fascinating and super problematic. (laughs) Hi, everyone. It's Rachel back. Today, I want to recommend one of my favorite true crime books, and that is called True Crime Addict, How I Lost Myself in the Mysterious Disappearance of Moora Murray by James Renner. This is about a college student that disappeared in 2004 in New Hampshire. Her car was found abandoned in the countryside, and she was never seen again. And in my opinion, that is not a spoiler because there are two kinds of true crime books. There are those that are written after a crime has been solved and the perpetrator is in jail. And the true crime book basically goes through the case about how the person did it, what happened, and gives the readers a good ending. And then there are also books like this, where it's actually a cold case, a case where it's known to still be unsolved. And part of the reason that a book like this is written is for the hope that by exposing the larger public to the case, that maybe an answer will eventually come out. And so if you're used to reading mystery books and are looking for that concrete answer, you won't find it here. But what you will find is an incredibly intriguing case. I like to recommend this book to people that want to try the true crime genre, but aren't necessarily interested in reading one of those really gruesome cases where there's a lot of gory details. A lot of true crime books are about serial killers and just really terrible subject matter. 
And so if you're a little bit anxious trying that out, whether it be for your own personal preferences and reading or just feeling uncomfortable that these books often kind of glorify the murderer or perpetrator in these cases, this is a very victim-centered book because you just simply are trying to figure out what happened to this young woman. And I found the case so compelling. Within the book, you explore different theories. Certainly, she could have been killed. She also could have been kidnapped. But there is also another possibility that she disappeared, that she ran away of her own accord because she was trying to get away from something or someone. And I really liked trying to piece that together in this book. The other thing I love so much about this book is one of the things you'll find in most of my favorite true crime books. And that's the fact that the author himself is very much a character in the story. As the title suggests, he became absolutely obsessed with this case. He was already a true crime writer, but he really lost himself in this case. And he actually paints himself in not a very nice light. You get to see a very honest picture of himself, the addiction that he got to this case, how it affected his life, his relationship with his son, the destructive behaviors that it led to. And I've heard the criticism that he's not a very likable character. I'm okay with that. I find him to be a very honest narrator. And I think it really goes to show what being a true crime journalist can really lead to because you do deal with a lot of toxic people, a lot of toxic information, and you spend your time basically researching really ugly things. The other thing that this case is great is the fact that him as a journalist used social media to try to find her. So if you are someone like me who loves the idea of being an armchair detective, there is so much to parse out in this case because he uses Reddit and YouTube and social media sites and you get to see the response from the public, how he found different clues. And that was just fascinating to me. There's some creepy things. If I remember, there's this one scene where someone reaches out to him through a YouTube video and it's so creepy. And this book will leave you with questions, but at the same time, it's such an addicting story. Like again, the title suggests, I think it was addicting for the true crime journalist, but also as a reader, it's one that reads like fiction, which is great for someone like me who honestly doesn't read a lot of nonfiction otherwise, but this one is just addicting. It reads like a novel and I definitely recommend it. Personally, I've always hung on to the idea that perhaps she ran away to Canada, not because the evidence in the book backs that up, but just simply because I always latch on to Canada in any book I read and hold on to that. So that's always where I think that this book might go. And finally, one of the things I loved so much about this book is when I finished it, I immediately wanted to go back and reread it. And I really need to do that because while I mentioned that the case is not solved as of this point, I got the sense from the book that if I just paid attention and read through it slowly and read all of the details, everything that he uncovered, all of the interviews with the family, I felt like maybe, maybe I could actually piece together what happened to her and figure it out. And that's what makes this book so compelling. So again, if you're someone who likes a mystery, likes to solve a case, is a bit turned off by some of the more grisly and gruesome books in the true crime genre, this is an excellent one to pick out. I constantly think about this case and I would love to see the disappearance of this young woman solved at some point. And I would, of course, love to be part of that. Probably not going to happen, but definitely recommend the book. So again, for anyone else that is interested, that book is called True Crime Addict, 
How I Lost Myself in the Mysterious Disappearance of Maura Murray by James Renner. And if I had to give this a rating, I would go with room temperature because as I mentioned, it's much safer and not as scary as some of the other books that are going to be talked about in this episode. So that is it for me. I will talk to you again soon. Okay, bye. My final pick is Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession by Rachel Monroe. This is fascinating. This, I think, is going to be one of my favorite books of the year. So this follows four women who are in some way connected to true crime. So we have an investigator, a victim, advocate, and killer. The first one is, I know I keep using the word fascinating. It's so interesting. (laughs) It's a woman Uh, Frances Glesner Lee who was this rich heiress and she became obsessed with forensics and this was I think like the 1940s and she used a lot of her money to endow Harvard into starting a forensics um, research lab in like their medical wing and she um, worked really closely with law enforcement and really pushed the um, Harvard forensics team to let local law enforcement also come in for training because you know they're the first ones on the scene and they need to know how not to contaminate a scene or how to start making like snap judgments when they walk in and reading the room and one thing she would do that was crazy was she would make these miniature crime scene dioramas with like a doll and make basically these crime scenes and have all the clues and they were used as training for people to like look and see like okay like this was the time, like, this was what, you know, the husband says he found. And, you know, you have to go and write your theories. And this was recently at the Smithsonian and people were going through and they had little pads of paper and you could write like whatever your theory was. And these are online. There's like a virtual library where you can like do like a VR, like swipe around in like the diorama and see like what you think. They have all the solutions like under lock and key. So like, I don't know if the solutions are even like known completely as to like what they are for these dioramas Mm -hmm. but she was the inspiration I don't know if you watched CSI Las Vegas in its heyday like I did okay I watched almost all of the CSIs (laughs) I love procedural (laughs) crime shows I was really much like I love true crime (laughs) I was a big Las Vegas fan like that was like my my -hmm. show on my DVR along with most evil like most evil in CSI Um, but when they had the big arc for like the dollhouse killer Mm-hmm. She, even though she wasn't the killer, they used her idea of the the person making these like macabre, like death dollhouses as the inspiration <laughs> for that character. That makes sense. Dolls are terrifying. They are terrifying. I have a big thing with dolls. That's just no. So I don't want to give like too much away about all the other stories, but there was one about a woman who moved into the Sharon Tate house. Yeah, you know, knowing full well (laughs) what it was and uh, what had happened there. And weirdly, it just started becoming chummy with the remaining family members of Sharon Tate and like the sisters and kind of becoming very close with one of them. And it really gets into like how the other family members thought of this uh, relationship. And so it's it's one of those things. It's like it's very complicated to think about then there was a woman who became Mm -hmm. obsessed with the idea of a man's innocence after watching a documentary on the west memphis three um and so she writes him a letter in prison and they start a relationship and the last one oh the last one was so disturbing it is the killer one it's um about a woman who wants to commit a mass shooting and it just really gets into like the (laughs) 
Columbine worship side of Tumblr, which was such a disturbing set of pages that just really got under my skin. And I think Rachel Monroe paints her in as much sympathetic light as she can as like what was going on in her life. And, you know, she was lonely. How did she find solace in this dark corner of the Internet that really made her feel somehow less lonely in the world? And she found someone in actually she was flying up to Halifax to commit this <laughs> um I will let you guys know she was not successful wow. uh thank goodness but yeah just yeah. all the moving pieces that went into what was going on and planning all of this and I will let you all know it was very disturbing just reading some of the posts and how people think on here it was it was bad and of course she's mm-hmm. gotten into like Tumblr obviously has a stricter policy now on like the kind of content that can be posted on their website and this was one of the corners of Tumblr that was shut down when that happened and it was just ugh. yeah that sounds super fascinating and like deeply disturbing I will say this is fridge, especially for that last story. That last story just like got under my skin and gave me the like heebie-jeebies, especially in this like mass shooting culture that we are in now. It's just like, ugh. yeah, like that's that's speaking of hitting too close to home. Like that's one I don't know. Like with a kid who's getting ready to enter like enter elementary school, and with like the actual everyday like low-key terror of something like that happening like I don't know if that's that might be a true crime story that crosses my like (laughs) threshold of things that I feel comfortable reading because yeah mass shooting stuff is just too uh it's too real it's too everyday still in our culture to get that kind of removal I know I read uh, Columbine and (sighs) so did I that's that's a tough one it's a good but intense book (laughs) also in this story Rachel Monroe talks about you know she flies up to Halifax and kind of scouts everything out to write this piece of the book and she talks about how she's like sitting in this library and like looking around and doing all this research and she's like looking through the girl's past post and sees that their original location was that library and she has a panic attack in the library just like looking around and imagining it and just she's like I'm a rational person I realize that I'm very unlikely like statistically like it's not going to happen to me but even in that moment it got to me of like oh my gosh it could happen here this was where she wanted it to happen yeah I mean I, I get chills just like hearing you describe it because that's the that's kind of the thing right that's the terror is especially when it comes to like mass shootings or those kind of uh unknown pre-planned acts of violence is that you never you know nobody going into church thinks it's going to happen there nobody going into the movies thinks it's going to happen there nobody going to a concert thinks that it's going to happen there and then those are the places that it happens or in school you know schools places we can't avoid going and it's just I think it's I'm interested in this book I'm interested in that Sharon Tate storyline I think that there's a um a part of true crime culture that we haven't talked about that because I have no interest in this part of the culture, which is that very kind of um, worshipful or obsessive relationship to the person committing the crime. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of there's a there's a Gillian Flynn book. Um, I think it's yeah. Dark Places. Yeah. It's either Dark Places or Sharp Objects, where there's like a whole mm-hmm. club that is dedicated to serial killers. There's a there's a storyline in American Horror Story Murder House that's about these people who are obsessed with a serial yeah. killer and return to this house to recreate his crimes. And so like there is that part of true crime culture too, mm-hmm. right? Like the people who get obsessed with it from the side of the perpetrator and less from the side of the victim and kind of reconciling what 
this crime has done to society or to these people. And so, like, yeah, I'm I'm always kind of morbidly interested to see how those people who feel that way got to feeling that way or like what the logic or the brain the the thought pattern is that gets them there so I'm also adding this to my TBR because it sounds fantastic it was recommended by Olive and I it could not have been better dude Olive <laughs> Olive's nonfiction recommendations are legendary yeah, always great I love her always great all right my last one is a super recent publication it just came out uh in the middle of october so only about two weeks ago it's catch and kill lies spies and a conspiracy to protect predators by ronan farrow it is so good i will say i think that this is a book that's worth picking up in audio if you are at all an audiobook listener ronan farrow reads this one himself and he does some accent work that is like particularly enjoyable to listen to this book features a lot of like ukrainian and russian folks but then like it's it's good uh performative work done for the narration of the audiobook but this is the story of many things it is mainly the story of harvey weinstein and the allegations against harvey weinstein based on sexual assault it's also the story of matt lauer it's also the story of donald trump's ties to the national Enquirer, and it's the story of how nbc knew all of these stories and worked to keep Ronan Farrow from reporting them. So there is uh, stuff in this book about Ronan Farrow being followed, about dossiers being created of uh, on Ronan Farrow and the people that he's close to for looking for potential points of emotional blackmail or manipulation. And it's all to keep Ronan Farrow from breaking the story that Harvey Weinstein for the last several decades has been sexually assaulting and abusing women throughout various power levels in Hollywood and the people around him have been working to uh, keep that secret and to continue to allow it to happen. Uh, this is not necessarily a news story. This is the, what kind of spurred or broke off or really brought to mainstream Tarana Burke's work with the Me Too movement and really blowing open the doors on the kind of whisper networks and the institutionalized power structures that allow things like that to continue to happen. This is, for me, this is a freezer level book. Like, this is the kind of book, mainly because it just happened and we are still breaking off pieces of this story. It was just last week that Harvey Weinstein went to some, like, actors and comedians event in California and the female comedians in the room got booed off stage for calling attention to the fact that Harvey Weinstein was being permitted to attend this event with up-and-coming actresses and comedians. And so it's like, I am always most horrified by the true depths of evil that human beings can do to other human beings. And this is a story purely about that. And it's about the everyday kind of banality of evil of other people to sit by and allow real life monsters to continue to prey on and wreak havoc with the lives of other people. Um, you know, content warnings for all of the sexual assault and sexual violation and, you know, physical abuse and gaslighting tactics that come with that. They play the clip of Harvey Weinstein admitting to sexually assaulting an Italian supermodel. Uh, they play his voice, his audio. So if that's something that's going to be disturbing to you, just know that going in. But yeah, this is a I think probably one of the best books of the year, definitely one of the best true crime books that's come out in a while and is absolutely 
terrifying to me. So again, that's Catch and Kill, Lies, Spies, and a Conspiracy to Protect Predators by Ronan Farrow. Yeah, I was going to say the most disturbing part about that is you would think like in the moment we're having now that the media would be like on board with exposing these people and it's like that wasn't always the case they're part of this system that benefits from letting people like that do their thing and turning the other way and it's so it's so awful like I mean it's since this book has come out and NBC has gotten so much pushback they have come out and said that if you are a person who signed a non-disclosure agreement that you feel you signed as a like a form of coercion you can now go to the network and ask permission to be released from your non-disclosure agreement to start to be able to talk about the abuse that you received at the hand and so it's like it's this thing where people are trying to get by with doing the surface level lip service to rooting out um institutions that support predators and abusers while at the same time trying to figure out how to still keep those things in place because those power dynamics benefit themselves like the the heads of nbc universal and nbc news benefit from the financial and social connections of somebody like harvey weinstein and thus try to work to protect him at the cost of now dozens of named complainants and so it's just yeah that I think that's the thing is like you know like we all kind of know but then to hear it fully like laid out and how many different people along the course like heard these things about Harvey Weinstein and either already knew and weren't doing anything or learned it and still didn't do anything to prevent any of this from happening and that is super fucked up and super frightening to me (laughs) yeah that's just I'm like I know I'm just sitting here like oh my god yeah I, yeah. I mean, your original reaction of like, ugh, there's just like, there's not really a better reaction to whatever, everything that happened with Harvey Weinstein. So, ugh. So upsetting. <laughs> well, ending on that note, Chelsea, should we talk about some chilling obsessions? Yeah, I guess I'll go. I don't know. This is probably not really more of an upper. Um, my husband and I just started. We watched the first episode of The Devil Next Door watched. on Netflix. <laughs> go on, go oh on. God. Oh my God. Speaking of evil people doing evil shit. So this is a very limited true crime series that Netflix is doing, a documentary series um, on John Demyanyuk, mm-hmm. um, who is actually... Uh, Ivan the Terrible. He is the man who at uh, Treblinka concentration camp would actually escort Jews to the gas chambers. This is a Nazi war criminal who until, you know, half a dozen years ago was living in a suburb in like Iowa, just like tending garden and raising his family while also having perpetrated one of the greatest mass murders ever in the history of like the entire world it reminded me a lot of the book um apt pupil which is a stephen king book which is about a young man who starts to get to know his neighbor mr dusander and finds out that mr dusander used to be and still is a nazi and a member of the ss and the um nazi high command and so I was immediate like that immediately brought to mind both of these like overlapping stories. And this is legitimately about I mean, like the title of the show says the devil next door and the kind of person that can be living underneath the facade of the people we think we know in passing. Right. Like, I mean, this is a man whose kids don't think that he did this, whose neighbors don't think that he did this, who has convinced everybody that 
this is some big Soviet Union era um, conspiracy to, you know, basically attack him. And so it's but he's a Nazi. And so it's like it's really deeply disturbing, but at the same time, fascinating and reconciliatory to see the process of and I'm only one episode in, but the process of how they went about proving and bringing to justice this um, war criminal who for decades kind of escaped capture and escape to justice so it's really good the devil next door please take care of yourself friends content warnings with all of the true crime stuff (laughs) it's funny Uh, my husband and I were watching it and we were just shocked he was like I mean yeah like if our next door neighbors at anything I'd be like I don't know he's a good guy just out there like gardening and doing yard work like I don't know yeah like what do I know he you know like my neighbor you know has a dog and is always nice when he brings in his groceries but like he could be a war criminal and I would have no fucking idea. Like, I wouldn't know. I'm going to assume not just because I think, like, they've mostly now found and brought to justice all of the, like, named and known most prominent um, Nazi war criminals. Yeah. But there's lots of global wars. Like, I don't know. I don't know who my next door neighbor is. <laughs> you never know. You never yeah, You really know. don't. Another thing he said, he's like, I'm not making any judgments right now. He's like, but I will say I definitely think he's a sociopath. Just how calmly he sits there and takes everything and shows no emotion during any of the hearings and almost like taunts the audience and then the holocaust mm-hmm. survivors in the <laughs> watching the trial at times it's like yeah he's definitely not like not a sociopath <laughs> yeah i mean whether he's yeah like whether he is or is not ivan the terrible like somebody who could be accused of doing the kinds of things that ivan the terrible did and be able to just kind of sit there and hear that and be like oh no but that wasn't me but not be like like, if somebody leveled those accusations at me or one of mine, I would be so deeply, like, offended and surprised and kind of, like, taken aback. But he just hears it and he's just so, yeah, yeah, almost, like, serene that it is, like, sociopathic. <laughs> yeah, it's just not me. I don't know. I don't know whose picture that is. I don't know. It's not me. I don't know. And you're just, like, <sighs> like, yeah, for him to sit there and just keep such a straight kind of calm face is, ooh, it's chilling. It's chilling, guys. It's a lot. Oh, man. Well, ending on like a somewhat happier. Ha- but yeah, so that's mine. That's my chilling obsession is the devil next door. Happier. Yeah. Sorry, guys. True crime could be kind of a bummer episode. Like, <laughs> this is definitely books in the freezer because on the happier note, we are ending on a slasher movie where young people get murdered. <laughs> Sounds good. So I recently watched Haunt um, on Shutter. This came out this year. This is about six college students that go to an extreme haunted house. And as you can imagine things go awry you know maybe it's more real than it seems you know the deal with like (laughs) extreme haunted house horror uh so the haunt promises to feed off their deepest fears and this was a lot better than i expected because i watched hellfest earlier this year or later last year and was kind of like meh about it and i have to say Mm -hmm. i was pleasantly surprised by this um there's a good character arc for some of the characters which leads me to wonder Because there's, like, one character that they give, like, a backstory to and that you genuinely care about. So is it better to have, like, one fully fleshed out character in a slasher movie or, like, all of them having, like, two sentences of backstory and you just, like, kind of caring about all of them? Like, I'm not sure. Yeah, see, I almost am. Because I feel like if you do one really great, then it just makes it stand out (laughs) even more that everybody else is kind of, like, just a character or just kind of, like, there, you know what I mean? So I'd almost rather have it be, like... Mildly loose characterization, 
but really great, like, horror, gore, jump scares, cinematography. Like, if you're not going to do the character thing, you got to make up for it by doing all the other stuff, like, super mm-hmm. great. Right, because at the end of this, I definitely felt satisfied, even though I was like, okay, I mean, we know the most about character A, so I'm assuming in characters mm-hmm. B and C are basically just defined by their relationships to character A. Like, that's all I know. I'm like, character B is character A's roommate. Character C, mm-hmm. you know, is a love interest question mark but it was good a lot of great gore set design was really good and I thought it did a really good job of like you know what this movie is gonna be when you watch it like there's no secret about that but I thought it did a good job of kind of lulling you into a sense of security and like the language that they use you know they get they sign the waiver and it's like don't touch the actors like please stay on the marked path this is for your safety and you're like okay like this is run-of-the-mill like haunted house stuff Mm -hmm. and when it starts out it's very like cheesy like you know target skeletons like fall down and go like (laughs) and so everyone's like oh this is dumb and then of course it gets a little more intense as it goes on um it's only like an hour and a half but I thought it did a really good job of like holding in the tension I thought like the ending was decent overall like pleasantly surprised by it I give it a recommendation (laughs) nice pleasantly surprised is uh better than most when it comes to like uh teen slasher movies so I'll take it so yeah, that is Haunt, and that is available, I think, only on Shutter right now. I mean, you might be able to get it on, like, VOD or, like, buy the DVD. But for streaming, it's on Shutter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much, Chelsea, for taking time out of your day to come here and chat with me about true crime. Thank you for having and letting me... I probably talked too no, much, so thank great. you for letting me come and uh, spill my guts about true crime stuff. <laughs> I wanted to give a shout out to some of you who support the show on Patreon. So I wanted to give a shout out to a handful of our malevolent spirit Patreon supporters. And this week, those people are Alex, Audrey, David, and Denise. Thank you very much for supporting the show. I appreciate it so much and it helps the show keep going. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, with me doing the show alone now, I am going to be kind of restructuring what I'm doing on Patreon. So I have something planned for December. So if you are a malevolent spirit supporter, look out in December for an extra bonus episode just for you. And if you would like to consider supporting the show on Patreon, you can find us on Patreon at Books in the Freezer. This is obviously not mandatory. There's a ton of free ways to support the show and Books in the Freezer as a show is always going to be free. So about Books in the Freezer, we are a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash books in the freezer. That is the link for the page. There is also a Facebook group you can join if you would like to do that. You can send us an email at books in the freezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes are at booksinthefreezer.com. I am Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. Or on Instagram at that's what she read. And that's that's with two A's or on YouTube at that's what she read. And I just realized that I let Chelsea go before she could tell you where to find her online. So I will let you know that you can find Chelsea on her podcast, Not Now I'm Reading, 
on Twitter at An Outlaw Life or on YouTube as The Reading Outlaw. Thank you so much for listening and join us next time for Books in the Freezer.